Father, thank you for catching up us, catching us up in the divine invasion of creation by the triune God. Thank you for catching us up on the forward line, on the front line of an apocalyptic eschatological war, a war in which our general and our advancing king died on the battlefield and yet was raised from the dead. We thank you for this privilege in Christ's name and ask now that the words we receive will grant us momentum as we are continuing in that forward divine line of action as human beings redeemed by Jesus Christ. We thank you for this opportunity. We thank you for all who have gathered here. Some, of course, have traveled long distances to do so, and we appreciate that fellowship greatly. We thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. The bridge part four, I want to deal with Romans chapter five, verses one through 11. Romans five, one through 11 is the beginning of the gospel unchained in the epistle of Paul to the Romans, the letter of Paul to the Romans, in which he has pretty much taken the citadel of the false teacher, a false teacher who Peter warns about, and we're going to see that at the connection to Second Peter in the near future, I think. But this teacher was authorized by certain false brothers in Jerusalem, as the teachers were, that made an incursion into the Galatian churches, and they brought a nomistic gospel, a gospel that was conditioned upon human works, the works of the law, and we have been discovering that there's not much difference between that and a gospel that is conditioned upon the human act of faith. And we're finding, of course, that the great truth that Jesus Christ's fidelity is at the foundation of our salvation and that faith, our faith as a human act, is something divinely elicited at the hearing of the gospel at the same time when the Spirit awakens that faith. So Romans 5, 1 to 11 is an inclusio. There is an inclusio that encapsulates it. We have in verse 1, in verse one the phrase, we have peace. We have in verse 11, as it closes off, we have received the reconciliation. And so we have peace, which is reconciliation, and reconciliation, which is peace. Romans 5.1, engaging the text, getting right down to business. Therefore, he says, being delivered. The word justified, again, has the connotation of liberation and deliverance from certain superhuman powers from which we could never extract ourselves. Enslavement to sin, enslavement to the flesh, which is a cosmic actor in the apocalyptic war, not just the lower nature of man. And, of course, principalities and powers are involved, and death itself is involved. Therefore, justification is a being set right in one sense, but it's a deliverance and a wholesale, unconditional rescue by God. Therefore, being delivered by faithfulness. The word here, I translate it that way somewhat boldly, because the faithfulness of Christ, whereby he was handed over for our sins, and resurrected for our justification is the last verse of Romans 4.25. Paul brings up Abraham not to do what the teacher did and put his attention on Abraham, 
Paul brings up Abraham to put our attention on God and Christ and the faithful act of Christ in our redemption. So as Romans 4.25 says, we have Jesus Christ was handed over, paradidomi. We know from Galatians 2.20 that he agreed with that, was obedient to that being handed over because it says he handed himself over for us or for me. He loved me and gave himself for me. So again, this is all conditioned by the verse that goes before. He was delivered over or handed over for our sins and raised for our justification. It can be argued, as I will try to do later, not tonight, but later in the series, the possessive pronoun, our, has to do with all humankind, not just with the church. The church is merely the vanguard of a divine action, a divine invasion. It's the church is a community of humanity that has been caught up on a divine line of direction, an invasion of creation with the view of liberation. The, liber- the liberating invasion of the triune God takes place in two divine missions, which we began almost in the first message of the Gospel of John. In John 3.17, God did not send his son into this world to condemn the world, but rather so that through him the world would be saved. The mission of the son, the mission of the spirit is also part of that divine invasion. The church is caught up in a divine line of action. Even the spiritual life is God in us willing and doing. Even our faith is a divinely elicited act by the gospel itself and by the gift of the Holy Spirit. So Paul does what the teacher didn't do. He exegetes Romans, he exegetes Genesis rather 16 through 22 with Abraham with a view to pointing to the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. And so he's attentive, attentive not to Abraham, but to Abraham's seed. The gospel that was preached to Abraham in advance was a promise that in his seed, all the nations, that includes Israel, all the nations, that includes all humankind, would be blessed in your seed. Paul goes on to demonstrate in Galatians 3.16 that the seed is singular and that the seed is Christ. And so there's another way of saying what he says in 1 Corinthians 15, 22, which we explored last night. As in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. So again, there has to be the idea here of faith. If you want to make it faith, it is a faith elicited. You see, the direction is divine. The divine missions is a divine line of action, invasion. It's a redemptive and liberating invasion into all creation. When the church is formed, it's because God elicits faith through the report, akoe. The akoe from Isaiah 53.1, who has believed our report? The answer to that is no one, because human faith doesn't get the job done. It isn't, it is the akoe, is the report, it's the gospel, it's the message about Christ, as Romans ten seventeen says. Faith, your faith as a human act, comes by hearing, and hearing, by hearing, or by the report, literally, akoe, is meant the message about Christ. 
The power of the gospel is its power to elicit faith. It's still part of a divine line of action. And so God activates or ignites faith. Remember Proverbs 20 and verse 27. The spirit of man, and at the end of Galatians is the only time when Paul mentions the spirit as a human spirit. All the other times it's the Holy Spirit. In Galatians 6.18, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. That's where what we would call the spiritual life begins. Proverbs 20, 27, the spirit of man is the candle of the Lord. It's the Lord's candle. It belongs to the Lord. He lights the wick, and that's the ignition of faith. But it's a participation in Jesus Christ's faithfulness, which in turn is a participation in God's faithfulness. The gospel is God's integrity demonstrated by Christ's fidelity for man. It has nothing to do with what man does for God. It has all to do with God's benevolence toward man, which is God's divine action toward mankind and all creation for that matter. It's a divine line of action. The church, therefore, is simply the vanguard of humanity, the first fruits of a universal harvest, the first fruits of a front line of a forward divine advance with the gospel. And that's what we are. We aren't that special, therefore. We're just partakers of a grace that will one day be universal. I'm saying all that to say this is why I translate verse 1, therefore having been delivered by faithfulness. And that's ultimately the faithfulness of Christ, which again is inferred from the last verse in Romans 4. Delivered by the faithfulness of Christ by which he was handed over for our sins. And Paul makes it more clear in Galatians 1.4. He was handed over for our sins in order to rescue us from this present evil age. And that present evil age consists of several opposing supernatural powers under which humanity is enslaved until the will is freed. So salvation never is a result of something you do in your free will. It's a result of what God does to free your will. And that's why the doctrine of rewards, Christians are rewardable in that they do things. They sow to the spirit with a liberated will, a freed will. I'll try to make those points all clear. Therefore, being delivered, that is, having been delivered by faithfulness. That's the faithfulness of Christ, whereby he was handed over for our sins, the sins of the world, 1 John 2, 2, and resurrected for our justification. In case you're wondering about our justification there, you have to read Romans 5.18. By one man's sin or disobedience, the many were rendered sinners and considered therefore condemned. So by the one man's obedience, all were justified so that justification can come to all. Therefore, being delivered by faithfulness, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that indicates, again, whose faithfulness delivered us. By whom also we have access by his faithfulness into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice at the prospect of the glory of God. The glory of God, by definition, is the universal 
universalization, universalization of the new creation. For if any person is in Christ, that person is the inauguration of a new creation. And so the hope of the glory of God or the prospect of the glory of God is that we live in an expectation of the universalization of the new creation in which all things will be recapped in Christ, recapitulated, summed up, or reached their sum total in Christ Jesus. To use Aristotle's language, going from an injured potency to a redeemed actuality, all of creation. And that's going to be an altogether universal thing. So again, that's also fitting with Galatians chapter 5 and verse 5. We, through the Spirit, by faith, wait for the hope of righteousness or the hope of universal deliverance. For the spiritual life is a faith, Christ's fidelity, working by love. Verse 3 goes on to say, not only that, we also rejoice or boast. The word boast is good here, but it's a joyous rejoice. It's a joyous boasting in the midst of our hardships, being fully aware that tribulation, in fact, it says the tribulation, and so it indicates the tribulation that Jesus told his disciples would be inevitable for them in this age, John sixteen thirty three. Because we are fully aware that tribulation, which is the guaranteed or inevitable tribulation that we experience as we advance the gospel, brings about perseverance. Perseverance, character. And character, hope. And this hope, verse 5, doesn't let us down. Because, and Paul is saying, because before that hope is fully realized... In the meantime, the love of God has been poured out into our hearts or in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. This hope does not disappoint, therefore, this is commentary, it does not disappoint us because we have the down payment of the future glory in the gift of the Spirit by whom we have been sealed until the day of the redemption of our bodies, says Ephesians 4.30. Verse 6, for while we were still helpless, at the appointed time, Christ died for the ungodly. This is an extremely important passage, because at the moment of Christ's death, all time converged, and all of humanity was seen in one sum total as having been ungodly, and it was at that Time when all time converged at the cross, that Christ died for the ungodly. That's all of humanity, as we'll see. Even as 1 Peter 3.18 says, He, the righteous one, died for the unrighteous, that he might bring us, who? All the unrighteous, to God. That's 1 Peter 3.18. For while we were still helpless, that is a, an abject Helplessness. That is a radical incapacity. That's not just being weak. That's being utterly incapable of extracting ourselves from enslavement as all creation is screaming out under its enslavement. When Jesus Christ screamed out at the cross, it was his identification with the desperation 
of a screaming creation. And his resurrection is the liberation of that creation guaranteed in an eschatological future already inaugurated now in a body of believers body of people who are participating in Christ's fidelity obedient to the faith with the obedience of faith called the church an addressable community of people who have been slam dunked into Christ by a divine action that did not require a presupposition or a condition upon the part of man our faith is part of a divine line a divine line, an elicitation of faith upon the gift of the Spirit. For while we were dead in sins, God made us alive together with Christ. When we were dead in sins, God made us alive together with Christ. He elicited our faith. Do we believe in Jesus Christ? We do. But it does not justify us. It merely acknowledges that our justification is by his faithfulness. That's what Galatians 2.16 is all about. Much more explaining will go on about that. But notice it again. I like to say, where's the condition? When this is unconditional grace, because where's the condition? While we were still helpless, there, you know what that means? While we were still unable to meet any condition. We're not able to meet any condition. Christ died for the ungodly. And then Paul goes on, he's contemplating now. He says, you know, with great difficulty, you can view this in the human race, with great difficulty. That means on rare occasions, someone may die for a model citizen. He's writing to Roman Christians here who understand the word dikaio in the Greco-Roman world has to do with a model citizen, someone who's invested in the polis or the polytuma the city-state. So with great difficulty, someone may die for a model citizen. And again, in the understanding of the Roman Christians, a dikaion here means a man who has vested interest in his city-state. Then he says, and perhaps someone may dare, and this again is on very rare occasions, perhaps someone may dare to die for a benevolent person. Agathu. But let's distinguish God's love here from the best of human love. God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinful, this word doesn't just mean sinners, it means sinful, hamartoloi. That means that while we were engaged in active hostility to his grace, while we were filled with sin, enslaved to sin, incapable of extracting ourselves from that enslavement, at the cross, all time converged. All time converged, and Christ died for us. This is the benevolence of God being highlighted in its unlimited nature. Justification, and I use that term loosely because that's not the proper translation for it as it goes back to Psalm 98. It means deliverance. But we could say justification or rectification is not a standing given to people to avoid the wrath of a wrathful God. It is an entirely benevolent gift to man. 
from a loving God. The we in Romans 5, 6, and 5, 8 has to apply to all of humanity because the ungodly, which is all of humanity, as Paul established it in Romans 3.12 and 3.23. Again, the ungodly is the only group of people whom God justifies. He justifies the ungodly, says Romans 4.5. He delivers unconditionally the ungodly. The ungodly, by definition, are people with radical incapacity. This does not mean that we were not responsible for our complicity with the enslavement to sin. And this will satisfy some of our evangelical brothers who and sisters who reject this message because where's sinfulness? Where's our responsibility? This does not say that when we were freed from the enslavement to sin that we were also not freed from our complicity, our responsible complicity to it. That's what Romans 6 is all about. But again, I'm trying to get the gospel straight first, which is a matter of Christology, before we get the spiritual life straight, which is a matter of pneumatology, the spirit of Christ, the spirit that cannot be disassociated from the crucified Messiah. So, as the scripture says, if God is for us in this way, who can be successful against us? God? No, he's the one who justifies. Justifies who? The ungodly. Who is he who condemns? Who's the one who condemns? Christ? No, he's the one who died. So the one who condemns is only the adversary who is being served by a false Jewish Christian teacher under the support of whom Paul called false brothers in the church at Jerusalem, as we find out in Galatians. Moreover, no one can be justified in God's sight by the works of the law, as Paul says in 3.20 of Romans, or by any other human action. And that's what the psalmist meant. If you turn to Psalm 143.2, you'll find out what I mean. This is one of the verses that Paul allows to echo into Romans, and therefore it's an echo from the Old Testament into the New Testament. Psalm 143, 2. So the idea here is that no one can be justified in God's sight by the works of the law, Paul says, or by any other human action or means, just as the scripture says. And in Psalm 143, 2, the psalmist said, do not bring your servant into judgment. For no one alive is righteous in your sight. No one alive. The Septuagint says no mortal person, no living mortal person is justified in your sight. So Paul accommodated this verse. Was he twisting it or was he under the inspiration of the spirit when he took that very verse and said no flesh or no person alive will be justified by the works of the law. He was entirely justified in making that statement. Paul accommodated this verse to his opposition to the nomistic gospel or the the law gospel of the teacher in Romans 3.20 saying, no one will be justified in his sight 
by the works of the law. Paul added that phrase, a qualifying phrase, by the works of the law, because what he meant was the psalmist already said no one by any condition met on man's side, no living being, no living human can ever be justified in God's sight by any human action. And so Paul says that human action includes the works of the law, of course. So he, uh, he adds the works of the law to this because the teacher in Rome was saying you can be justified in the sight of God by the works of the law, which of course would mean that Christ died for no reason at all. Christ is sidelined. He's sidelined by the Reformation gospel. He's sidelined by the doctrine of justification by human faith. He's sidelined. His part, his significance in our salvation is questioned. And I may actually printed out the notes from uh, message 50 that will be on the website, written on the website, so that you'll be able to pick up what I mean, not only by what I said and taught audibly, but 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 also wrote, I think it's very, very clear in the message called, be careful of domesticating Paul. Don't domesticate his radical gospel. That's been done for way too long. And so Western culture is presently in its worst, near catastrophic, disastrous position. And it's at this time that the true gospel is being recovered. Go figure. So then, Paul accommodated Psalm 143.2 in verse 20 of Romans 3, saying, no one alive will be justified in his sight by the works of the law. So under the Holy Spirit's inspiration, he added, by the works of the law, rightly in every way. This was entirely right to do because... Psalm 143.2 is declaring that no one alive, that's no flesh, we could say, no humanity, can be justified in God's sight by any human means or by meeting any condition of human merit. And I like what William Law said, the faith of one man, if one man relies upon his faith and another upon his works, the faith of the one and the works of the other are equally filthy rags. Because faith becomes a human work and a condition that then sidelines the dying of Jesus Christ. That's tragic. I don't know how, tra- how, how deeply you recognize the tragedy of that situation. And I just barely do. And that's because I spend hours and hours and hours every day, including when I'm away in Florida, every single day without exception, hours and hours and hours in Things like Galatians and Romans and Ephesians, the letter of Paul to the Laodiceans and Colossians and 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians and 1 and 2 Thessalonians and Philemon. I spend a lot of time and my mind is being baptized there. So the more time I spend there, the more I realize the tragic false gospel. It sidelines Jesus Christ. So under the Holy Spirit's inspiration, he added by the works of the law. So why does he say that by the works of the law? Because the works of the law are certainly in the category of human actions. The whole epistle of Galatians is related to a divine action, 
versus a human action. And that salvation from beginning to end, from its intention in eternity to its initiative in time to its completion on the day of Christ is of the Lord. And I realize that there's even some resistance in this congregation, but that's the price you pay when you advance with the gospel. You're going to get resistance from the congregation. Because no matter how we progress in grace, there's still something you'd like to hang on to and call your own, isn't there, in terms of merit. So the works of the law are certainly in the category of Psalm 143.2. So Paul rightly allows that scripture to echo into his case for the law-free gospel. The gospel which announces a liberation from the power of sin by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, by the act of God in Christ, and by the act of Christ in God. That's not semantics. That's the gospel. We are delivered by the act of God in Christ and by the act of Christ in God. For humanity, we are not delivered by any acts of human beings for God. We are this objects of a liberation from the power of sin by the faithfulness of Christ, by an act of God in Christ and an act of Christ in God. God loved the world so much that he gave his son. God acted in Christ. Christ loved the Father so much that he was obedient and gave himself for us. We are justified or delivered, liberated, with the potential of transformation even now in time by an act of God in Christ and the act of Christ in God for humanity, not by any acts of human beings for God. Again, if Christ's faithfulness, and this is where the bridge is found and buttressed. If Christ's faithfulness is the source and means of our deliverance, which we will call for purposes of teaching our justification, then can we not anticipate the justification of all humanity? Or is God's faith, is Christ's faithfulness only good for the salvation of a certain limited elect? And this is where it's useful to use the tulip. We learned this in Bible college, but it's an insufficient way to describe Calvinism. It's an insufficient Calvinism. You know the tulip, T-U-L-I-P. That's supposed to define a, a form of Calvinism. The first one is total depravity. It's not the right way to describe it, but I would call it radical incapacity. So I'll put a check by total depravity. The U is unconditional election. And so even Calvin understood that salvation had to be an unconditional election. But here's where the problem came in with L, limited atonement. That is blasphemous in my view, limited atonement. That means that the death of Christ was only for the elect, and the elect are perceived as a part of humanity. The rest are either predestined under superlapsarianism, they are either predestined to an eternal hell, and so their only crime is being born, or 
They are left to their destiny under infralapsarianism. They're left to their own destiny. That's something I, in my growing spiritually in grace, I adopted that infralapsarian view for a time. I do not adopt that any longer. The eye is irresistible grace. Again, I might change that term, but I agree with it. Irresistible grace because while we were dead in sins, God made us alive. But I'd call irresistible grace unconditional grace. No, it is a presuppositionless grace. It doesn't have to find positive signals in man, asks Saul of Tarsus. And then P is the perseverance of the saints, which again, I got to qualify that because the, if, in other words, if you're truly saved, you'll persevere. No, I think perseverance is a divine thing. It's the perseverance of the father and the son to keep and preserve. It's the perseverance of the Holy Spirit who seals us until the day of redemption. Perseverance as a quality of a Christian which is found in the Holy Spirit, is a participation in the perseverance of Jesus as he endured the cross. We'll never undergo that kind of pressure, but we do have that kind of perseverance for lesser pressures in life. That's the grace of God. So if Calvin's right about man's incapacity to extract himself from being under the power of sin, if he's right about an unconditional election, but if he's right, if he's wrong about a limited atonement, and I'm not saying this is Calvin per se, but this is the way people define Calvinism as a system, then it looks like God sent his son to die for a segment of humanity whom he unconditionally elects and irresistibly saves. But then... He leaves because the limited atonement, Christ didn't die for everybody. But the, uh, the scriptures beg to differ because John said, and he should have said it to Calvinists, Christ died not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. It's an unlimited atonement. That would screw up the tulip. The tulip has wilted. So if God saves by an unconditional election, people under a total radical incapacity my question is does he not in fact will he not save everybody because we're all in that same boat of total depravity and therefore irresistible grace is the only thing that can save a people for which there is no condition that man can make that's what psalm 143 2 is saying i you say don't bring me into judgment because and there is going to be a final judgment but Paul said, according to the teacher, that final judgment is going to be condemning and cursing. But Paul said, but that judgment, according to my gospel, is through Jesus Christ. Through Jesus Christ, whom God has made to be what? Our righteousness, redemption, wisdom, holiness, sanctification. 1 Corinthians 1.30. Why? Because God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not a part of the world. The whole world, not imputing their sins to them. Who's their sins? The sins of the whole world. Limited atonement is a blasphemous doctrine, however you slice it. And so I agree with total depravity, with unconditional election, but ultimately Jesus Christ himself is the one who is unconditionally elected by God. He's the elect one in Psalm 
in Isaiah 42, 1, and God says, look it, there's my elect one, my servant, in whom I am pleased. And so when Jesus Christ was elected, all humanity was elected in him. He's the single seed. The gospel was preached to Abraham when a promise was made to Abraham, and the promise was without condition. That's what Galatians 3 brings up. And I'm going to have to do a separate study within Better Call Paul. If we're going to deal with Galatians verse by verse all the way through and Romans all the way through, I'm only building the scaffolding for that now. This is just the means of approach to it. But a separate study will have to be a study of Galatians, for example. But that's what Galatians 3 is. When God preached the gospel in advance to Abraham, it had nothing to do with law or circumcision. He simply said, in your seed, which is Christ, all the nations, including Israel, will be blessed. Blessed with life out of death. Blessed with justification with deliverance with unconditional salvation the whole gospel is universal when God preaches it in advance to Abraham it is an unconditional promise he doesn't say in your seed all the nations will be blessed if they meet certain conditions he says in your seed all the nations will be blessed period over and out that's an unconditional promise and the promise is the promised spirit the spirit is the promise. It's called the promised Holy Spirit in Ephesians 1.13. And the Holy Spirit generates faith because he's the spirit of faith, the same spirit of faith that Jesus Christ has, we have. It's a participation, 2 Corinthians 4.13. But I want to finish this. So some of you are saying, well, then get on with it. I will. Okay. Again, if Christ's faithfulness is the source and means of our deliverance, and it is, it's very clearly, that battle's been won in theological circles as far as I can see. And if you want some further proof, you can read Richard Hayes' book from 1989 called The Faith of Jesus Christ. And I think you may be convinced. If you're not convinced by me, I think you might be convinced by Richard Hayes and others. So... If Christ's faithfulness is the source and means of our deliverance, our justification, then can we anticipate the justification of all humanity? Paul certainly does. In Romans 5, 18 to 19, and 1 Corinthians 15, 22, he does seriously. Consequently, we have another buttress for the bridge from unconditional grace to universal grace. Preachers of unconditional grace are not prepared to say that God's grace is universal. I don't know why. We're detecting the bridge here in Paul. This has been the hardest work for me because this isn't, the bridge isn't made. It hasn't been built or it hasn't been detected. Now, here's another verse that just popped into my head today. Job, of all places, 25.4, and the words of a guy named Bildad, who was one of the erstwhile friends of Job, whose counsel was not in any way a divine viewpoint. So the erstwhile or... False friends of Job all gathered around him in his suffering and gave him false counsel. And when Yahweh showed up in a hurricane or in a really a force five tornado or whatever you call them, what do you call those meteorologists, Sadar? What's the heaviest tornado? That's what I thought. An answer G to five. And he showed up in that five 
level five tornado. He said, who are these people who darken my counsel? And there's a lot of people darkening the counsel of God. But Bildad asked a good question. It's a twofold question. Job 25.4. He says, how can a mortal man be righteous before the Lord? He's got the same idea as the psalmist. There's nobody living that can be righteous before God. Not, by, not only by the works of the law, but by any human action or means. So he says, and he's right here to ask the question, how can a mortal man be righteous before the Lord? And then he said, how can someone born of a woman? I I was really struck by this because in Galatians 4.4, in the fullness of time, that is when all time converged in the cross, all of human history converged in the cross, all of humanity was viewed as one orb of Humanity, one mass of humanity under enslavement to sin, that's when Christ died. There's much more to be unfolded about that. It says, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. Born of a woman. Born under the power of the enslaving and cursing law. In fact, so much was he under the power of the law that he became a curse for us. He became the curse of the cursing, enslaving law. The law isn't evil in itself, but the law was taken in hand and co-opted by sin. And so it became an enslaving and cursing thing. But Christ was made a curse for us so that the blessing of Abraham might proceed without obstacle to the pagans as it does to the Jews. So Galatians 3:13 and 14 and Galatians 4:3 to 5 tells the same story, one from a Jewish perspective, one from a Gentile perspective. Put them together and you got a universal perspective. How can a man, how can someone, he says, born of a woman be purified, cleansed or washed? How can it happen? The answer is that God's son, born of a woman, in the fullness of time, was sent to redeem those under the power of the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. And by we, he means all humanity, as we're going to show, not tonight, but soon. Gentiles under the not law and Jews under the law who are alike under the power of the law as it has been co-opted by or commandeered by sin. So how can a mortal human being be righteous before the Lord is the question, especially if no one living can be righteous in his sight? So the psalmist said, don't bring me into judgment because no human living being could ever be righteous in your sight. And Bildad says, how can a living human being be righteous in his sight? How can it be? In other words, if you put those two together, we're all, we've all had it. The judgment means condemnation for everybody. So, how can a person be righteous before the Lord if no human being can ever be righteous in his sight? And here's the answer, only by being in Christ. Only by the power of the gospel which elicits faith and gifts the undeserving sinner with the promised spirit. 
That's why Paul said to the Corinthians, some of whom manifested their sinfulness in dramatic and egregious ways, as he lists idolatry being the worst in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and following. He said to the Corinthians, some of whom manifested their sinfulness in these dramatic and egregious ways. He says, some of you were these people. Were being the operative word. But now you have been washed. In fact, he says, now you have washed yourselves, which means you participated in a divine action of purification. Even as he says in Galatians 5.24, those that belong exclusively to Christ have crucified the flesh with its disorienting affections and desires, passions. And so the, question, the answer is, who can be purified? Well, the answer is those who are in Christ by the fidelity of the one man Christ. Again, that's why Paul said to the Corinthians, some of whom manifested their sinfulness in dramatic and egregious ways. Some of you were these, but now you've washed yourselves. You've become purified. And then he says, now you have been sanctified. And then he says, but now you have been justified in the name of Jesus Christ. Justified in the name, or we could say, through the fidelity of our Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't say now you're justified by faith. He said now you're justified in the name of or by the fidelity of our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 6, 11, answering Bildad's question. Who could be righteous in his sight? The worst kind of sinners can be. That's who? Justified in the name of of our Lord Jesus Christ, and by the Spirit of our God. Part of the act of justification to show that it's not just a legal thing is our baptism by the Spirit into union with Christ. Our deliverance is affected by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ and by the Spirit's action who places us into Christ. That's irresistible grace. He's the Spirit of grace. And there's a resistance to the Spirit of grace today, even in Tetelestai phalanx in some quarters. And it's, be careful. You can resist it honorably for a while, but when God shows you, you better roll with the way he goes, because then you'll be in the line of divine action where you belong. Answer to the first question then, Bildad, is that a mortal human being can be righteous before the Lord by the very action and power of that Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the answer. And the answer to the second question, a human being born of a woman can be cleansed only through the action of God's son who was born of a woman in the fullness of time. That's when all time is summed up. So let's finish Romans 5, 9. Much more than, let's go into another gear, he says. Let's go beyond. Much more than, having been justified, we'll use that word just for teaching purposes, although I say it means delivered, Having been justified by his blood, not by your faith, but by his blood, which is another way of saying his faithfulness until the extent of death by crucifixion. 
Therefore, having been justified by his blood, we will be saved from, quote, the wrath, close quote, the wrath that the teacher threatened you with in Romans 1.18 that's hanging over all of you because he gave you the creation and you denied his, his creatorship, and so he's given you over to all these terrible things, and if you don't get circumcised and get cracking with the law, you're going to be under the curse of the law and condemned in the final judgment and sent to eternal hell. Paul says, being justified by his blood, we all the more are sure to be saved from this wrath through him or by him. The word dia sometimes means through, but a lot of times it means by him. Verse 10, for if we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, first class condition, and we were. If we were reconciled through to God through the death of his son, how much more certainly will we be saved? That means in the eschatological future day of judgment by his life, or we could even say N, in his life as sharers of his resurrection existence. Remember, mimesis, which we call imitation, is not a staged imitation of Christ as if he's over here and we're here mimicking him. Our mimesis of Jesus Christ comes from a shared existence with Christ. I'm alive, and yet it is not I, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live in the faithfulness of the Son of God. Imitation, as it's called, to imitate Christ or to imitate God, First Thessalonians 1, 6, Ephesians 5, 1, is not to imitate in the sense of being a staged imitation, but it's a shared existence with Christ that manifests his life. That's the spiritual life. See where it's coming? It's starting to pop a little bit, pop out of the doctrine of the gospel. Verse 11, and not only that... Paul keeps saying that, not only that, but there's this, and not only that, but there's this, and on top of that, there's this. Not only that, but we also rejoice. He's going all the way back to rejoicing or boasting. We also boast. He goes back to the boasting in verse 3 and verse 2. Not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have, and the word N-U-N is used for already, through whom we have already received reconciliation, tain katalagain, which means we have already received the reconciliation that was the act of God in Christ for the whole world. The church is simply the first fruits of the recipients of that reconciliation. So he's saying in closing, we have how much more, not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Tain katalagain is the word, and you can compare it with 2 Corinthians 5, 19. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And Romans eleven fifteen, that the Israel's future eschatological restoration will be at the point of their bodily resurrection from the dead. Their reconciliation comes at the bodily resurrection of the dead. When will all Israel after the flesh that didn't believe in Christ in time be reconciled at the bodily resurrection? Not judged and damned, reconciled. Read Romans eleven fifteen if you don't believe me. So in closing, my closing, that was Paul's closing, we've already received that reconciliation that God achieved in Christ for the whole world. 
See what he's saying here? You have already received the reconciliation, Romans 5.11, that God already achieved for all the world. But you've actually received it. You received it because you got caught up in a divine direction line of God who elicited faith in you upon the hearing of the gospel. Not a hearing of the gospel followed by if you believe in Christ, you can have it, but a gospel that includes the fidelity of Christ as the justifying action of God, which you believe. And therefore, you believe in Jesus Christ means that you believe that Jesus Christ's faithfulness and not your faith justifies you. See, it's getting clearer and clearer. Dropped another lens. Can you see clearer now? So this reconciliation is elsewhere in Paul. That part of humanity that is the proleptic redeemed community and the vanguard of the invasion of God into the entirety of humanity and all of creation. You're part of the leaven that's leavening the whole creation. You're part of the, you're the three measures of yeast put into the bread of the woman. That is the church is the vanguard in the, we're actually caught up not in a human action for God, but in God's action for man. We're part of that. We're reconcilers. We are ambassadors for Christ. We are here in his stead because he's in us. And so it's frustrating that I can't express this as I want to. That's why we keep coming back here. Three times a week. So in, this clearly is demonstrated by the inclusio of Romans 5.1. We have peace with God. And Romans 5.11, we have now received the reconciliation. Again, please note, this reconciliation is elsewhere in Paul, that which was affected by God in Christ for the whole world. So the church isn't distinct from the whole world in terms of reconciliation. The church merely has received the reconciliation before the whole world does and before all of Israel does. And so God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their sins to them in 2 Corinthians 5.19. And most famously from our treatment of this in Revelation Colossians 1.20, God's intention is expressly stated here, and the bridge is constructed, it's detected. It is through the peace that was made by the blood of Christ's cross to reconcile all things in the heavens and on earth, things visible and invisible, inclusive of angelic dignitaries and principalities and powers who are now part of the supernatural opposing power how does God undo them by restoring them by reconciling them those who have been unconditionally you see justified and rectified have already received the reconciliation that God has effected in Christ for the whole world to hell with limited atonement and so to reconcile all things in the heavens and on earth, things visible and invisible, and the way Paul puts it, inclusive of angelic dignitaries, yes, Paul says all things to himself, all things to himself. The totality of created reality brought to its total actuality, its total reality in Jesus Christ. Those who have been unconditionally justified and rectified have already received the reconciliation that God has effected in Christ for the whole world. 
the reconciliation by which all created reality will be reconciled to God in the telos, the end, the fulfillment. 1 Corinthians 15, 24, in the end, then comes the end. First, Christ the firstfruits. Then those which belong to him presently, the church, at his parousia. Then comes the end, the telos, when the rest of humanity receives that reconciliation in a resurrection from the dead. And that's also found in Revelation twenty two thirteen, where Jesus said, I am the beginning and the end. In Romans ten four, Christ is the telos, the end of the law, because he gives deliverance through his faithfulness. So, Father, we thank you for this opportunity. It seems that a bridge is being constructed from the unconditionality of grace to the universality of grace. And therefore, two strains of doctrine which are occurring right now in your church, in the church of God, in the Israel of God, can be finding a reconciliation. And therefore, a bridge can be crossed so that we can have fellowship with our brothers and sisters who understand unconditional grace and with our brothers and sisters who understand the universal grace, because it's all wrapped up in Jesus Christ and his universally saving significance. Grant us this vision, but because without this vision, your people are perishing under an Adamic ontology, under continuation in an Adamic ontology.